0: everybody is murderous in their attentions towards everybody else they can hold them back submit yourself to one all-powerful absolute sovereign thomas Hobbes, the great 17th century natural philosopher called this
1: Leviathan.
0: like shapeshifters but only a lot more into oh. eastern folk and nothing can kill them
1: hello the internet and welcome to the lands of leviathan podcast a member of the Agora Podcast Network, where
0: we discuss political science and popular culture, as always, hosted by Peter Sleeman and Brock Roderman.
1: This week, we're going to be talking about the Panama Papers, a little bit of a topical um, subject, or it would have been if this episode had come out when we expected it to, two weeks ago. So to all of our listeners, (laughs) we would like to apologize for the delay. I know that we've said this before, but... uh, Brock and I do live on opposite sides of the world and we have a lot of inter, we have got a lot of cables and air between us, which can cause a lot of internet problems. Um, So yeah, we're very sorry about the delay. We were going to try and get back to our usual of one episode every two weeks, um, starting with this one again. So this one hopefully will be up soon, Um, but I don't have to say that because they're listening to it. So it's not up. Okay. I'm going to cut this part out. Um, So, yes, guys, sorry about the delay. Uh, Again, technical interference causes all sorts of problems. But, yeah, Brock, do you have any apologies to make?
0: No, my conscience is clear.
1: Well, I think seeing as I live in a first world country and, uh, you know, my Internet's fine. So I blame it on the South African infrastructure because fuck you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so, yes.
0: Don't worry, we all hate telecom down here.
1: So topical thing, we are going to be talking about political and uh, corporate corruption in line with what uh, happened with the Panama Papers, and we're going to be discussing that through the lens of a movie that Brock and I both love, it's called Daybreakers, it's all about vampires, Um, and I think the way we're going to tackle this is firstly give you guys some information about uh, political corruption. We'll go into the background of the Panama Papers and then explain it to you through the use of daybreakers. So, Brock, what about political actually, corruption? Actually, I
0: yeah. wanted—I'd rather do the—I'd rather do it the, another way around, do it the journalistic way, and rather discuss quickly why the Panama Papers are so topical and why they made the headlines so quickly and so abruptly, and why they've been so disruptive. And then we can talk about what it means and how we can analyze it according to political corruption and corporate corruption. Um, because we know that you know not every case that's being opened by the Panama Papers is necessarily a case of corruption, mm. and then uh, and we can yeah you know, then reference the, the film after that.
1: Yeah, so actually that's a good way to do it. I'm not a journalist, so I don't think like that. Um, but uh, Brock has so what written-
0: happened, Peter?
1: Brock has written for newspapers, so he thinks he's all there. Um, well, what happened? <laughs> so as I'm sure most of you know. There have been allegations against corporations and politicians for some time now, accusing them of tax dodging. And uh, this is a mechanism that's used by a lot of corporations to not pay taxes in the countries in which they operate. And as I'm sure that you guys are aware, which we'll go into, this is not good for the country in which those corporations operate. But for the first time, we now have evidence to support those claims. So what happened was that... There is a company that operates out of Panama. It's called Mossack Fonseca. Now, this is a law firm that is used by corporations and individuals to channel their funds through shell companies um, in tax havens. Now, tax havens are areas of the world where residents do not pay income tax. And because of the way that the international capital system works, Corporations are often treated as individual entities, which means that if that corporation is registered as a corporation in one of those tax havens, they don't have to pay tax in those tax havens. So to put this in more practical terms, it means that if a big So co- that's
0: essentially what a sole company is, is it's a, it's a pretend company. It's a company that pretends to act in, independently and it pretends to own assets. And there's actually very little real asset that it owns. Exactly. It just serves as a sort of channeling function. It performs a channeling function for money um, as, it, as it sort of registers the money as it comes in and goes out again and it, the the funds get passed on between shell companies so as to jump between countries, depending on where those, co- those shell companies are registered. Exactly. And that way you can channel your money away from your tax-regulating government.
1: Yeah, so I, I think to give a good example of this, I used to work for a company that I won't name because I'll get sued if I do. Um but this company was operating as a poker company um that technically was not allowed to be in the online poker industry in the com- in the country in which they worked. So they registered their company in uh Gibraltar. Now that because Gibraltar didn't have those same laws it mean- meant that that company could exploit a loophole in the law and essentially operate in whichever country they wanted to. And this is essentially what they do. So you can imagine that Google, which is actually owned by a company called Alphabet, which in turn is probably owned by a whole bunch of shell corporations. Those shell corporations are registered in the Virgin Islands or the Canary Islands or any other, Switzerland, whichever you know tax haven you want to be in. And Google pays all their revenue to the shell corporation. The shell corporation doesn't pay any tax and Google gets away scot-free with... Their non-paying tax ways.
0: Now, this became popular during the neoliberal 1970s, when the international economy boomed significantly, and uh, private individuals gained a were open to to gaining a whole lot of wealth really quickly, and they wanted to keep it away from the government. Um, So many of these companies had been set up around that decade Mm. and have popped up ever since it hasn't been a a phase that that has died down yeah and in this case Mossack Fonseca was set up as far as long ago as 1970s and they have been collecting clients and managing the the business of clients since then and rather successfully Mm -hmm. and it was and now the reason why that's important is because it's very difficult to take down these kinds of companies that have been well established because they 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 uh their powers, they have strong powers. They have powerful individuals. They do business for powerful individuals. And yeah. so there is such a strong network that supports, um, a company like Mossack Fonseca because it, it handles so many people's wealth that it becomes untouchable. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really, it's very rare that you would hear of a company like this being taken down, especially from an insider.
1: Yeah. And I think just before we get into how the story was broken, what also makes us interesting is that, um, For those of you who don't know, the international rules on trade and international finance and international economy are incredibly complex. Like, so complex that there is really nobody on the planet who has a full understanding of how the system works because they are a hodgepodge of different legal systems that have been cobbled together. Some of those legal systems have been in existence since fucking the Dutch East India Trading Company. So... It's very difficult to get through, you know, the different maritime laws, international transaction laws, things like that. So whenever a, com- a country like, for instance, let's say England that recently brought a lawsuit against Google for tax evasion tries to do that, what happens is Google sets their lawyers on them, which obviously Google can afford to do through like a fuckload of money and ties the whole operation up in so much red tape and legal Douchebaggery that they can keep, (laughs) yeah, they can keep the court case going indefinitely, and nobody gets anywhere. But what and what's always hamstrung these individuals is that on an international level, there's no freedom of information. There's no larger body that you can appeal to, like you would at a national level, to ask for these corporations to release their international transaction logs because there is no government that can enforce that. So we've never had any evidence, really, that supports these things until now.
0: Until now. Until
1: now. now. So a very brave um, individual who we're not – we still don't know who he is because – or she – because they want to remain uh, nameless, obviously. Because otherwise, they'd be super dead. Um, they had a huge <laughs> not
0: just re- not just regular dead, not like super fucking really dead. dead,
1: super dead. Like I think Google would have gone <laughs> back in time and killed off like, like death his by a lightsaber
0: and Sith lightning. They would have the wiped
1: time. his whole family out of the history books, like just completely gone. Um, anyway, <laughs> so this uh, this individual had. Terabytes of information, and just to let you guys know, this information—two point six, Peter. Two point six terabytes. Yeah, this this guy had. I mean, this information was mainly documents. There was, I think, ninety percent of it was documents. Obviously, there were some graphs and stuff in there, but I, I, you know, the average word document is less than ten kilobytes. So you can imagine two point six terabytes of documents on a on a computer is just a fuckload of of information. And he released this information to a German newspaper. Uh, Brock, what's that German newspaper's name?
0: Uh, The Süddeutsche Zeitung.
1: Yeah. And uh, this German newspaper then went, holy fuck, realized that there was no way that they could sift through all this data themselves. Um, And once they realized where this data came from, which was internal records of the operations of Mossack Fonseca and all the people that they'd been dealing with, They outsourced a lot of the analysis work to an international organization of journalists um, who have spent the last year sifting and collating and bringing all of this information together and were able to go public with it a couple of weeks ago or about a month and a half ago. Um, And now suddenly... Yes, but
0: they've been been sifting through it for over a year.
1: Yeah, huge amount of time. Now suddenly we have a large amount of information that implicates... A huge amount of people, and um, so, like, I think uh, Brock, you probably know some, but the people that I know were implicated. Firstly, and most hilariously, was Jackie fucking Chan. I don't know what he's doing in why he's funneling all his funds through a uh, tax haven, but okay, Jackie Chan. Uh, the the biggest uh, political fallouts have been uh, the pri- president uh, or prime minister of Iceland, who was forced to resign due to his yeah. uh, implications of him. Um, the president of brazil there were some implications that she was involved um obviously nobody was surprised to find out that jacob zuma the president of south africa's nephew was involved which means that jacob zuma was involved um vladimir putin was not involved personally but every single person around him was involved which like you know well done for covering your tracks vlad you fucking idiot um just i'm scared now he's gonna kill me <laughs> If you listen to this podcast, that'd super on his cool. You <laughs> um, And like, yeah, so not to mention the fact, I mean, tons of people, just a really a lot of high profile people. And it wasn't just corporations. Mostly politicians. Yeah, uh, politicians on the corrupt side, but obviously corporations. Google has been implicated. Um, a lot of your oil companies, Shell, BP, um, uh, ExxonMobil, you know, the kind of, you know, uh, usual suspects that you would expect to be involved in this kind of thing have been, has, have had the finger pointed at them. Quite a few of Saudi Arabian sheiks, not surprising either. Um, but I think also what is incredibly, uh, distressing, well, for me is that they've also been able to trace which way the funds have been going. And that these things have not only been used to protect assets and corporate funds, but have been used to fund things that are internationally illegal. So individuals funding North Korea's nuclear program, uh, funding organizations well, like before ISIS. Before we
0: get to those devastating effects, yeah, yeah, yeah. we need to explain why th- why these the shell companies are frowned upon, but not necessarily illegal, and why their actions are frowned upon, but not necessarily legal, and why the individuals involved with them are never actually locked up for doing anything illegal, um, is because the argument goes, I mean, this is coming from me who understands very little about it, but basically, because the money belongs to individual people, what they do with it is their own. And like Peter said, there's no international governing body that can tell people exactly what to do with their personal funds. Mm. It's just that... the because the average person can't afford to pay shell companies to take their money out of the country, everybody normally pays tax on their money. Mm. Um, at least, you know, the the middle and lower classes do. And the, the, the extremely rich can afford to avoid that. Mm. Now, why people frown on that is, well, it, I like to ask every person who does frown on that, ask them if they had that amount of money, would they, be pre- would they be prepared to part with it and give it to the government? I doubt it. They'd probably be doing exactly the same thing. Mm. But the reason why that's bad is because the amount of money that's being taken out of the country could is supposed to be doing some serious good for society by paying taxes. That's mm. why we pay taxes, is to distribute wealth and to help the poorest of the poor and to generate... Uh, to provide public goods, to look after the areas that we live in, the whole you know there are a whole bunch of things that, that the government uses taxes for, and while they don't always use it in the best manner, the principle still stands that you should be passing it over to the taxman. Mm. So by avoiding that, it's it's, it's very much frowned upon, um, and it's uh, but not necessarily illegal mm. until, like Peter says, you end up using your foreign deposits, your large foreign deposits of cash, to fund illegal activities such as. <laughs> Being so stupid as to provide weapons to the, the, the Syrian army, for example, yeah. or to rebels in, in Syria, And <laughs> I know or, or providing you know, enriched uranium to, um, to terrorists. That's, yeah, that's, exactly. Yeah, I mean, totally, absolutely.
1: And I, well, I know also from a legalistic, you know, from a tax legal point of view, you get two things. You get tax avoidance, which is legal, and tax evasion, which is illegal. So, I mean, and everybody can do this. So, for instance, when you file your income tax uh, at the end of the year, at the end of the financial year, depending on, you know, where you live, depending on how that's done. But like, for instance, in Australia, I file my income tax at the end of every year and my accountant will say, okay, we can claim this, this and this and this. And we can avoid these specific taxes by utilizing different tax laws that's called tax avoidance so he's trying to decrease the amount of tax I pay as much as possible because I might be paying for a service that I never actually use or overpaying for a specific thing um, and that's completely legal Every, most people do that most companies do that um, whenever that whenever a government feels that that is being exploited they will usually legislate against it to say okay no we're putting a tax cap on this that assert people have to pay this or whatever. I mean, that gets very confusing. Tax evasion is where you go out of your way to not pay the tax that you are absolutely supposed to pay. So for instance, all of you earning a paycheck at the moment, uh, depending on which country you're in, probably pay income tax. If you find a way around that, that's illegal. That's not tax avoidance. You are like legit stealing money from the government. So don't do that. That's that's not cool. Um, and again, as Brock says, that becomes even more illegal when you funnel that money through a shell company to fund ISIS, that's also super illegal. Don't do that either, because why would you <laughs> want to do that? It's ISIS; they're not good guys. <laughs> um, but so, Brock, but, you- yeah, that, that, that
0: distinction is important to point out, mm. and that it's also while we while it sounds um, easy to understand, even for some, a simpleton like myself, while well, you know ev- evasion is illegal and avoidance isn't. Those lines, they, you know, there are bodies and bodies of people, lawyers and, and tax specialists who are employed to blur those lines.
1: Yeah, um, on a and, and it's
0: in that grey zone that 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 the companies like Mossack Fonseca exist. They exactly. exist to right in between the the black and the white. And that's I mean, that's why so tax law is its it only, own
1: its own speciality. I mean, there there are people who specialize yeah, just in tax law.
0: So so with so within this so within this context. And it's it's doubtful. Okay, it, it might make for splashy headlines if the Panama Papers had only named the people involved. But it turns out that they actually just had been up to some shady stuff and not necessarily illegal. And that case might go away. Mm. But because some of these funds had been used for illegal activities, now the case is going to stick around for a while and people are probably going to be investigated uh, for a lot longer and a lot more thoroughly yeah. than they would have been. Uh, If they, you know, if they'd actually just been storing their personal money away overseas.
1: Um, Brock, I'd I'd just actually like to ask you a question before you carry on, because I just had a thought. And we've brought this theory into play quite a few times, but this might just be a throwaway. Do you think that the people who are actively avoiding or evading tax are breaking the social contract with the state?
0: Well, I think that that's answered by your um, distinction between tax avoidance and tax evasion as soon as one breaks the law by evading tax by not paying their taxes they're effectively giving up on this on the state mm. they're saying that the government that who's employed by the state to carry out its tax mandate and distribute wealth for the bit for the improvement of society that we're saying that they're not capable of doing that yeah. and because we don't believe in the government we don't believe in the state so yes you are definitely opting out and uh, and you know it it's tax tax evasion some people hold it up as some sort of achievement that you may manage to make it out of the system but there', there are so there's so many um, negatives to that There are so it's such a controversial act that um, people don't really they don't realize how much of the social contract they're throwing away by doing so i one you know what, one figure that really impressed me was that internationally this kind of this kind of business at conservative estimates um, speculate that about between seven and ten trillion dollars gets funneled away from governments through these through tax havens every year. And, but in this case with this leak, it's jumped now that they're able to prove that it's, it's closer to between 15 and 25 trillion dollars and some even speculate as high as 35 trillion dollars is escaping the pockets of government. Now whether you have faith in your government or not, as faulty as they can be they are probably they are downright going to be better if they had more money. <laughs> yeah, they they would be able to carry out more projects. Sure, they might fail those projects. They might even steal some of that money, but it's just it's wrong to take that amount of money away from the from and the this, state in which you live. This
1: raises such an interesting point because um, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's like an ultra conservative uh, French. Uh, she's part of Front National, and she was talking about how the French state doesn't have enough money. But takes care of all the immigrants coming into the country and obviously in a very front national type way saying that they should take care of their own people first and take care of immigrants second. And like as much as people dismiss those arguments and say like, oh, you're just being racist. When you you look at how much money is being funneled out of the country by these corporations – you might start to think that maybe the French government doesn't have enough money because nobody's paying their goddamn tax. So, if the fucking corporations and these very shady businessmen and women, I mean, this is a gender equal society, <laughs> we're paying their fair share. Yeah, everyone's
0: guilty of corruption.
1: Yeah. We're paying their fair share of tax. If the French government, as an example, Would be able to take care of their own people, plus the immigrants and the asylum seekers from Syria, plus give everybody a goddamn fucking flat screen TV and everything else they wanted because it's trillions of dollars.
0: Yes, the the amount of money it was really what sold me on this point is how important it is to to shut down this kind of behavior yeah. because I, you know, I'm I'm first in line when it comes to criticizing governments and states, but it, unfortunately, it is at the moment the best system we've got, and we've got to show faith in that by you know by keeping by keeping money uh, with within the country. I'm not saying that you should go out of your way. To empty your savings account to give it a hand over to the government. No. Mm-hmm. It's more just that when we complain about government not doing its job well, when we complain about social projects, um, failing, we talk, or we, we look at problems in society and we say, if only we had a bigger budget to deal with this. Guess who the culprits are? It's the people who are taking the money out of the country. So that's why it's so serious. Now, where it gets really sticky and the reason why we cho- chose to talk about this today, so.
1: Just to say, like that, the, this is also like some of these politicians are guilty of this as well. Like it's not corporations bad, governments good. There are people in government who are also guilty of this action.
0: Okay, you jumped the gun there because that's where I was going with. I was saying the reason why we're interested in talking about this is because, um, because of its political nature. The very few people. No, it's okay. Keep it in. The very the, the very people, the few people who are who are named and shamed in these Panama Papers. Um, are the people who are supposed to be who are charged with spending public money, because of the nature of the individuals, because most of them are politicians, they're exactly the type of people who you would think would want to keep their national budget together. They would want to keep it rolling. They would want to keep it fixed and inflated um, with as much public cash as possible. And, but instead, they're, they're funneling money out of the country, which just doesn't make sense. Why would you really want to underhand your own state? I can understand if you're a sports star. And you've just gotten greedy and you've made so much money, you actually just think, man, I I deserve this. I'm actually going to take some of it and stash it away from myself. I, I don't agree with you, but I can understand, you know, your mind is not necessarily publicly inclined or politically inclined. But if you're in government and you are tasked with, you know, you're a minister or something or you have to lead a state and you're tasked with spending taxes to look after people, why would you take your own money out of the country? I mean, that's saying like you have no faith in yourself or you have no faith in your cabinet or your government that you can actually perform the mandate you were tasked to, to perform. It's and, just mind boggling how how corrupt these people are.
1: But the interesting thing is, is that we do have not even theoretical. We have reasons in political science to explain why this activity takes place um should i go into that please
0: explain it to me
1: so as i've discussed before um in a number of podcasts human beings are herd animals and we're only able to maintain a herd in our brains and it's an actual biological limit that we have of about 125 people now that limit might sound a bit crazy to you if you think like oh i've got 500 facebook friends But just think about the amount of people that you actually interact with in your social circle. You've probably got your family, maybe some extended family, and the amount of people that you actually know face-to-face. Now, imagine yourself in a situation where you had to pick, you have a whole bunch of resources in front of you, and you have to pick where those resources go. You have absolute control of where those resources go, and you need to divide them up depending on whichever way you think. You're not going to get shouted at. You can do whatever you want. Now, most of us would like to think, well, I will divide it up equally because I am a good and generous ruler. But biologically biologically speaking, that's not what you're going to do. You're going to follow what's called your instinctive biological imperative, which is to take care of yourself first, family second, and extended kinship group third. And that extended kinship group Peters out once you get to 125 people. Now, a lot of biologists have done the studies. They've proven that once we get to that 125 people mark, it's very difficult for human beings to see other people as people. We begin to see them as objects within our environment, and it's very difficult to subjectively put yourself in the position of an object. We don't consider the feelings of rocks, or well, some people do, but usually we don't. Um, we consider the feelings of those who are most important to us. Now. That was fine and makes a lot of sense from a political evolution perspective of human beings when we evolved because we only had bands of 125 people and we warred with each other and we seized resources, but that was very good for the survival of the species. And just incidentally, human beings have the largest groups of any other mammal on the planet. Um, you know, our closest relatives, the chimpanzees, they've limited to about a 50 to 60 uh, individual group. But what this means is that when we get to political associations that are bigger than that, we have to start accounting for fucked up human nature. So we have to start putting into place checks and balances that stop powerful individuals from seizing resources and distributing it to their, what in political science we call the patron group. So you might have heard the reference to patronism. Or what, uh, similar to how the Medici is treated in, uh, in Florence. Yeah. So, pa- you know, a patron, patron client relationship. Now, a lot of our modern political institutions are set up in order to stop this kind of thing from happening. It's to stop elites in society from seizing power in order to divert resources to their own group. And what you're seeing now. In my opinion, what you're seeing now is a very negative effect of the neoliberal policies put into place in the 70s and 80s, as Brock said, with a deregulation of finan- of international financial markets. Because what it allowed was very powerful corporations to make a fuck ton of money. Now, this was good for the, for the globe. It, we've seen the largest capital accumulation in human history in the last four years, which has allowed the development of modern medicine and modern technology. It's been good for human beings. But on the other side, it's also allowed those elites to seize those assets and divert them towards their own kinship groups. Now, obviously, they don't think like that. They think that what they're doing is either not hurting anybody, because you can't hurt somebody that you don't consider to be a actual human being. To you, they're just white noise. So a lot of these people don't think that what they're doing is actually wrong, because for them siphoning off a couple of million dollars a year when they're making billions is not such a big deal. But to the taxpayer on the bottom of the ladder, that couple of million dollars means that their welfare grants get cut off. And that's the fuck up. That's where people really get hurt. And like, I think- So
0: there there are two groups here that need to be addressed. And it's based on the nature of the guilty parties, which is the the big, the fat cat businessman- and women who make all this money within a deregulated neoliberal financial system that is beneficial to capital accumulation because, and the, um, the nature of that system does not allow them to, does not allow the, that, that acu- capital communica- capital accumulation to trickle down to the bottom. Yeah. And that's the only way that capitalism can survive yeah. is if, the this is as if that um that waterfall that backwards waterfall that flows upwards eventually channel turns around and is channelled down, and that's based on a fully functioning and capable state. Yeah. So and this is so why trickle down happen, economics you've, fails. You've got. Yes, this is why trickle down on economics fails. Is because business is allowed to um take place outside of the state. Is allowed to take place internationally, mm. and tax havens make 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 uh, make money off of that. Yeah. Um but it would be able to be regulated if the state stood up and forced companies, uh, to you know, to turn around and pay their taxes, put their, put their backs against the wall, and actually hold a knife to their throat. Well, that's I'm exactly saying, what needs to happen now. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, this well, this is where the other sphere of the guilty party comes involved because the the politicians are also involved in it. Mm. So. When we had politic when we had polities that were much smaller, it was a lot easier to hold leaders accountable. That's why when we had band, when we were running bands and ruling in tribes, we only had you know a hundred or a few hundred people to to rule. It was a lot easier for uh, a for the leaders to feel accountability and to experience it. Um, and it was also it was easier for them to be more altruistic and to consider all members of their society mm. because it was naturally programmed. Because they had to. Well, it. Yeah, actually, but now with the modern yeah. state. It, it's so much larger, they are far more susceptible, susceptible to cutting out everybody who's beyond that 125-person limit.
1: Mm, exactly.
0: So they, so their tendency to prioritize their professional position and use that as a means of personal gain is what has become this phenomenon known as political corruption. Mm. So, so when you add political corruption with untransferable capital accumulation or the non-trickle-down effect, that's when you get this bubble of cash serving a global elite and not making life better for those who are poorest.
1: Yeah. And you know what I think is one of the best examples of this in uh, popular culture? Fucking daybreakers. Daybreakers? Day fucking breakers. (laughs) So do you want me to explain the story of daybreakers quickly?
0: Um. Yes. Yes, but I—I uh, I, I must be honest. I haven't seen it in a few years, so uh, okay. So to be thorough,
1: I will. So, Daybreakers is an interesting movie because, firstly, the story is absurd, and secondly, it's very cool. Um, <laughs> so, in Daybreakers, the—the <laughs> the story is is that there has been a virus that has infected the entire planet that has transformed almost every single human being on the planet into vampires, standard vampires. Or standard modern vampires. So religious stuff doesn't do anything to them. But they can't go out in sunlight. Uh, they have to drink human blood. Uh, that's, that's the two things. Um, you stab them through the heart, they die. And the other thing is is that if they don't maintain a steady diet of human blood, they turn into like ravenous bat monsters. And they lose their humanity. So in this economy human blood becomes the resource that is absolutely necessary for the welfare of every individual within the society so the it's main... interesting
0: because i remember it's not just the resource i think it's also the currency they like they trade and exchange human blood for better blood and
1: yeah it becomes like a barter system and they're gifting blood to yeah. each other it's all very it's all very macabre um uh, but we're introduced to the main character who's ethan hawke who's a uh a biologist. Um, he works to he works in a pharmaceutical company, trying to fabricate a artificial source of blood, basically creating a surplus of the resource that everybody needs. So, pretty good guy. Everybody's happy. He's a like a vegan vampire. He doesn't drink from humans because he's introduced to us as a good guy, <laughs> and uh, he only drinks from animals. So, you know, yeah, Ethan Hawke. We're also introduced to his boss, who is played by Sam Neill, uh, the main, one of the main characters from Jurassic Park. And uh, Sam Neill comes across as a very nice, fatherly figure who's um, very, uh, you know, entrenched in this idea of, of helping out the multitude of humans. Now, what happens in this the rest of this movie is there's a whole lot of battles and there's a fight sequence and it's very cool. They. But eventually what happens is they find a cure for vampirism. Willem Dafoe is then introduced to us as a person who's a human, but he used to be a vampire. And it turns out that you can cure vampirism by being uh, put in sunlight for the exact right amount of time. Um, I think that this was fairly lazy on the part of the screenwriters, but whatever. Um, so Ethan Hawke has now has this cure. And he goes back to his boss, and he, after whole bunch of other fight sequences. And he says, Hey, everything's cool. Now I have a cure for vampirism. Everything is going to be all right. We don't have to rely on the scarce resource anymore. Sam Neill then through a whole bunch of exposition tells us that before he was a vampire, he was a human who was dying of cancer and the turning him into a vampire essentially gave him immortality. Plus, he is also the leader of the pharmaceutical company that now controls artificial blood as well as the cure, as well as the normal blood supply that comes from humans. Which means that Sam Neil. So basically, decides, he's like the Bill Gates of the vampire world. I like, I, I don't know. Bill Gates, I think Bill Gates is a nice guy. He's the Mark Zuckerberg of the vampire world. <laughs> yeah, just like his position in global power, is what I mean. The richest motherfucker that just, yeah, he's huge. But he decides to, A, protect himself. You never see any extended family, which is unfortunate. Actually, I think he has a daughter. I can't remember. But you never see an extended family. But if he did have any extended family, he would be protecting them as well. But he decides to protect his own interests as opposed to those of society in general. So society would be better if he released the cure, told everybody about it, um, and brought society into a better way of life. But he decides, for his own reasoning, that he wants to keep control of the cure, the blood supply, as well as the artificial blood supply. And he says that if even if he releases the artificial blood supply, he's still going to keep normal blood because it'll drive that price up to a premium. So he's just being a super dick on all counts. But it shows, I mean, it's very hyperbolic, but it shows a very interesting idea of how this elite person who has managed to capture... Um, all the resources what in an activity that we often call rent seeking in politics, he becomes the patron of the system that now all people have to like come to yeah, he monopolizes the system, but he also he, from a, like almost like a political corruption term he does become a patron that people would have to patronize in order to gain access to those resources. He becomes the only person who can dabble. In those resources, putting him in a very powerful position. Plus, he only takes care of his own interests, all those of his friends, and the the, the people he patronises. So it's a, I think it's a very good and very easy to understand metaphor of how this political corruption system happens, but in a very hyperbolic way. Yes, I think his character in the film
0: accurately captures the meaning of corruption, which is that you use your office for personal benefit, personal yeah. gain. You take uh, your an office or a mandate that has been given to you by the public, yeah. or at least has some public implications, and you make it personally your own, and you use it to fulfil your own interest. If he weren't to do that, mm. if he would be were to be more altruistic and follow his true social purpose, then he would probably pay, pay more attention mm. to Ethan Hawke's character and try to get the yeah. try and get the cure to vampirism out there and use and use his company to do that. But since he doesn't choose to do that. We get uh, we get the benefit of seeing how how corrupt he is. Mm.
1: I think there's an interesting other thing here as well in that when you when you're a person who is surrounded like your 125 large group of people, if all the people that surround you are the exact have the same exact ideological background as you, and this doesn't come through in Daybreakers, but it does come through in movies like X Men where Stryker is doing stuff that is extremely immoral to Wolverine for the sake of what he thinks is the betterment of mankind. And he has a group of people around him that also believe that. Um, Stryker surrounds himself with people like Trask, for instance, and Trask is of the same perception and idea that using mutants to achieve political and military gains is best for the country. But importantly, it's not best for the country. It's best for Trask and Stryker and the people that surround them. And if perhaps Trask had had a best friend who was like a little bit more hippie and not so crazy and was like, dude, uh, it's not cool to go and like graft adamantium skeletons on people. Like that's, that's not something that our society should be doing. Then maybe Trask would have been like, you know what, fictional dude I've just created I think you're right. And maybe he would have been a better person. But And I think that this comes into when we talk about CEOs and high-level politicians, is that they're constantly surrounded by people who are exactly like them. And with their 125 people all agreeing with them, they don't consider the opinions of people outside of that circle because biologically we don't do that. So why would they? And I think that's when you get into these immoral situations. That's where the debate lies, I think, because...
0: Many people would get, would get confused there and say, no, because he's the director of the company, it's up to him to decide what's best. Yes, that's true, but that's narrow and it's shallow and it's short-sighted because it doesn't encompass the fullness of his C the, the, His character as the CEO or as the managing director and as the owner is not just to do what he thinks is best full stop. It's to do what he thinks is best for the company, for his clients, for the patients, for his partners, for everybody. Mm. So he's got a lot of responsibility to take on And because he doesn't do that, because he only makes the decision to better his lifestyle and to suit his individual interests. And see that he blinds, or he disregards and undermines the interests of other people, especially those who look to the mm. company to cure their vampirism. They're just completely ignored by him.
1: And I think that, that's, we don't, that the state doesn't have to take care of the people because we pay them taxes. That's how the state takes care of the people. The state has to take care of the people because they have a moral and ethical responsibility to do so. Every single person in society has a moral and ethical responsibility to take care of those around them. And I mean, those are those are conceptual fabrications. Those are social constructs that we've constructed that doesn't make them any less important. And that CEOs aren't exempt just because they're CEOs. And I think that this is also, this is a, a, another negative um, effect of the neoliberal agenda. Well, hate it's not an agenda. The neoliberal turn um, agenda makes it sound like there's a conspiracy. Um, is that, you know, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan said that, you know, private businesses know best about how they should run their businesses, which to be frank, I agree with private businesses do know best about how they should run their businesses However, that's not an open license to do whatever the fuck you want. You still have a responsibility. And and it's, it's, it's shocking to me that it's only been in, what, the last 10 years that we've really started to pound this idea of corporate responsibility.
0: I agree with you, yes. I think it's a good idea. We should also keep in mind that there's a necessity for a clean divorce between a public mandate and a private mandate that government mm. and – uh, sorry, not government. Let's talk about private business and individuals. They don't have pub- a public mandate directly. They're not yeah. charged with looking after the, the country directly. They don't have to usher, uh, write up policy and implement legislation. Mm. That's government's job. And we need government to do that and we believe the government is capable of doing that. Otherwise, we wouldn't have set up the state. They might have failings. They might come short our responsibility <laughs> to keep them in check and, and to improve that because, it, because we believe in representation. But it's not just their responsibility. We don't, because if we were to say that it's just up to governments around the country, then we, then all we get to do is benefit from the rights, but that would not entail the responsibilities of citizens to, to, to take on the responsibilities of those rights. So if we want the right Mm -hmm. to enjoy life and to pursue our business and to look after our families as we see fit, then we also have the responsibility to do that and to help those that can't, uh, help those people that can't do it themselves. Help people that are you know, that um, that are incapable of doing it themselves, and are therefore look to other people, both the public sphere, both public actors like government and private actors, to help them out. It doesn't. We can't just trust in profit margins and in the growth of the business and looking after our employees to take care of that. There's something more to the private mandate. If we thought that that's all that it took from us, as private individuals. Then we didn't then we then we wouldn't have created the state. We would all we'd need is a corporate state. We'd make the CEO of the biggest company would make them the president of the state. Uh but to but to keep capitalism in check and to make it run to make it function fully, we'd have to make sure that the public mandate exists with government
1: and that we buy into that mandate and we help out in our own small way. But in terms of its actual you know, in in terms of asking the question what comes now after the panama papers how do we stop this kind of thing from happening again obviously if everybody had a you know a very strong moral center and an ethical way of doing things of course that raises a whole bunch of other questions of you know which morality what kind of ethical decision may is it utilitarian is it deontological is it christian morality you know it does raise a whole bunch of other philosophical questions but i think Importantly, is this notion that when you are encased in a a corrupt organization, you might not necessarily see that organization as corrupt. I don't know. I, 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 maybe this argument might fall apart on me. I, I can't imagine that Seth Blatter feels that he's not. I don't know how that guy justifies what he does to himself. But you know, he might be the exception. I do do think that a lot of CEOs, if you went to them and and they were, you know, they had to give you an honest answer and you said, do you think that what you're doing is bad? I think that they might not necessarily believe that what they're doing is bad. I, I think that they might have been inculcated in a culture for so long that they can't see out of it. So, in that case you know maybe it's necessary to have much more regulation over these systems much more and to almost regulate certain principles and ethics in international f- trade and finance
0: well, i see now we're getting exactly where we didn't we didn't want to go cuz um, into that uh, moral philosophy <laughs> subject because you got to ask it from every ethic or regulation that you implement is going to have some moral background. It's going to come from somewhere. Someone's going to think about it and it's going to be influenced by someone's mind. Um It's just that we must make sure we have to accept the fact that in no one's culture is it ever okay for exploitative behavior to occur. Yeah. Um, and I, like, whether I you think- want to justify that according to different philosophies or or belief systems, or whatever, we under, we know that there is no culture on this planet that would accept that kind of behavior, or would justify absolutely. it, or explain, or, or defend it as moral behavior, morally yeah, acceptable. absolutely, behavior.
1: because you know, moral relativism becomes an excuse for any kind of behavior when you take when you take the moral relativistic argument too far, which so many people in history have done. Um, I mean, I think that this is a philosophical question. If we question. say that, the, if we say
0: that those morals, yeah.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I'm just saying, I think this is a a very strong philosophical question, but at at the end of the day, that there is a, there are, as you said, it comes down to the fact that like, is it ethically justifiable for a corporation to funnel funds out of a country in which they're operating that should have been being paid in tax, whether that's legal or illegal? If it's morally wrong, then it needs to be legislated. Like, no, you can't do that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I have nothing more to add to that. Yeah, I think it's an interesting, I, I mean, I think we've pretty much covered this topic, but I think it's an interesting question to end on and maybe a question to pose to the listeners that, you know, this, we can't take this moral, moral position on, on, on corruption and are these people bad? Do they think that they're bad or would you guys just think that everybody's an asshole or, you know, I know that there are probably some quite far left Bernie Sanders supporters out there who are like down with wall street, fuck that man, kill him with a pitchfork Um, And maybe some (laughs) far-right-wing conservatives who are like, no, free business and everybody gets a pie. I don't know what conservatives say. And maybe some centrists like me who are like, I don't know, let's think about it before we kill people. Um, (laughs) I think we'd love to hear from you guys. So uh, get get in touch with us. We Uh, would like to hear from
0: you. But I still want to hear from the person who's prepared to defend... Corruption as a matter of moral relativism, and say that that person, it's the way that they were raised, and that should be okay for them to do. I don't um, ask the internet
1: to do that because somebody because told it,
0: me. Wrong. A, <laughs> oh, I would like to meet that person. It would be fun. <laughs> the, they say it's a matter of moral indifference. He he was just hurting us because he thought it was okay. Um, yeah. But yeah, also, I we should just, 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 just to conclude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the new uh, defense. Well, we got onto the topic of political corruption through the Panama Papers, and we wouldn't want to mislead anyone and say that because people have been named in the Panama Papers, they are accused of of corruption. No. Um, we must keep a you know, we must stick to the facts and, and uh, remember that these are just people who have been revealed to have done business through Mossack Fonseca. And that's yeah. about it. What they do with that money might have been corrupt, but that remains to be seen. We just chose to take, um, an angle at, at that uh, incident, that case, um, which, an angle which was uh, you know political corruption, so we could explain that a bit better. But yeah. uh, we wouldn't want to paint everyone on that list with the brush of corruption.
1: Of Absolutely. Being corrupt. Except Jackie Chan. Fuck that guy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we love you, Jackie. Don't listen to Peter.
1: <laughs> I love you, Vlad.
0: Okay, thanks, guys. Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed that. If you did not access this via our website, landsofleviathan.com, then please visit the site to find other materials, such as all of our other ACARS tracks and articles. And if you'd like any updates on the website, please don't be shy to subscribe to our RSS feed that is posted there. We also look forward to hearing your comments and feedback. So send us an email at gmail.com. It's L-A-N-D-S-O-F-L-E-V
1: and you can also find us on Facebook as well as Twitter um, under the Lands of Leviathan podcast and if you didn't listen to that directly then you can find it on Acast or any Acast supporting app such as iTunes hope you enjoyed it guys thanks so much